This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 44. Coming up on today's show, my hero Elaine and Cat's Cradle. All that and more on the way on Still Standing. No talking points, no spin, it's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Hi, this is Michael Caputo. Thanks a lot for tuning in to Still Standing. I want to thank my uh, Patreon sponsors at patreon.com. You you too can donate to support this thing. Milton Howe, John Seifert, Henry Watasik. We call all these people our executive producers because I don't think we could do this without them. Uh, Susan Havey, Tom Fulton, George Noonan, Darcy Swenson, Sonia Carlin, Daniel Markey. Stephen Flaminio, Brian Przdurski, Jack Bromwich, Samantha Lynn, executive producers Jordan Gostomsky, Susan Stevens, Julie, Rachel, Mark Berry, Pat, uh, Patty Freeling, Bill Grant, Greg Mumbach, and Gary Stokes. All still standing executive producers, every single one. Uh, I actually, the left, the leftists, the Russia hoaxers, they all get a big kick out of the fact that I only have 30 so. Uh, people who actually subscribe and pay for still standing, but I'm very proud of 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 having every single one of you along. If you want to join my team of executive producers, you can do so at Patreon.com. Look for Still Standing. At the same time, you can find all of our uh, episodes at StillStandingPodcast.com. I try to do a little bit of video there, some blogging as well, but mostly it's a video experiment. Uh, I've had a lot of fun doing it. And even while I'm down here in Puerto Rico, I'm still reading the listener feedback. Uh, I got one from, uh, I'll just uh, pick up two of them here. Let me see here. Uh, I just listened to episode 41. Love the podcast and love to watch you on Fox. Can you tell me the name and artist of the song you played at the end of episode 41? That's Fran Walker. I'd like to purchase a song if able to do so. We'll be praying for you and many other victims of the weaponized government. Thanks also to your service to our country. My brother was in the Vietnam War at the DMZ line for a while and was also in the first Gulf War. He's a retired sergeant major in the U.S. Army. Thanks, Fran Walker, for the for the message. The song is actually by a friend of mine, uh, Sergei Voronov, uh, Russia's number one blues guitarist in a band called Crossroads. Sergei Voronov, Crossroads, uh, that's We're Still Around. His song, We're Still Around. His his guitar licks are great. I love them. He gave me permission to use uh, this on my podcast. He's uh, at first resistant to do so because Sergei is not not political, hates politics. He's like, come on, you don't need my music. But I do. I love that song, We're Still Around. And it makes me feel I feel like it's it's thematic, actually. Even though everything that went down during the Russia hoax, my wife and I, our family, we're still around. And just like Sergei Voronov and Crossroads, they've been around since rock and roll was illegal in Russia. They're still around. So, so Fran, you can actually find We're Still Around by Sergei Voronov uh, and Crossroads. I think it's on iTunes, but you can certainly find it on YouTube. 
Look for it. We're still around. Another letter from Patricia Valvo. Uh, I enjoyed the current podcast. Boy, are you pissed. Yeah, that was episode 43. I'm, I'm really mad, actually. And rightly so, Patricia says. Yesterday, Andrew Wilco had a slightly different take on Mueller. Did you notice that he answered all the questions from the Dems with sharp, short, and deliberate strong answers? Whoever, when it came to questions from the opposition, he stalled, couldn't hear, etc. It may have been an act, but I thought it was an interesting take. I didn't notice that, Patricia, but I'm going to re-watch that. You know, Mueller may seem like a doddering old man in that situation. He may have. Uh, I made fun of him. And then, as I said in my last episode... 43. At first, I was sad about it. At first, I laughed. And then I got sad about it because what this this doddering old man had brought down on my family. Then I got angry because I realized he was put in there, put in there purposefully so that the people underneath him could run amok and rip me and all my friends and my family apart limb from limb without having, you know, any real supervision. That's my take. I'm sure Wilco has a different take. I'll listen to it. That's cool. Thanks a lot for writing. Uh, remember, you can you can write to us. Uh, go to stillstandingpodcast.com. Uh, find all of our episodes. But I wanted to to bring something up here. Now, you know, I'm down in uh, Puerto Rico. I'm not telling you where in Puerto Rico, but down in Puerto Rico, my family and I, we don't uh, we don't feel very safe anymore in Buffalo. Right now, we have a a. Uh, a democratic socialist Antifa type named Jeffrey Sharoon, who threatened me and my family. We have him up for on charges in Buffalo. In fact, he was before a judge in a, a Buffalo area court on Thursday. Fourth adjournment was Thursday. He's being brought up on aggravated harassment charges, a crime. And uh, I have a, a, what do you call it, an order of protection against him. He had to turn in any guns he might have. But this was the 59th death threat, and most of them we can't locate. Most of them, you know, they're anonymous. Or if I can locate them, um, the police tell me it's just, you know, close to the line, but it's not a crime. Some people know how to use language. But Jeffrey Sharoon did not. Kind of an idiot, you know, threatening me clearly from his open Facebook account. When he was actually, <laughs> when the police contacted him, he said, What? Me? I would never do that clearly. The, the Russians have hacked my Facebook. <laughs> That's what he told the police. And the policeman, the detective, great detective in our, our local police department, uh, Detective Longboat, his name is, great guy. He said, you know, uh, you know, if you lie to the police, it's a problem. <laughs> and Sharoon quickly stopped with this. Somebody hacked my Facebook thing. And now he's been to court four times. He'll be coming to court. He'll be coming to court again. This next time, it's up. He's going to have to either plead, uh, you know, cop a plea, plead guilty to a lesser charge. Probably that's what he'll do. He'll probably cop a plea to what uh, disorderly conduct or something. But he'll get something on his record. That's my intent. But you understand, Jeffrey Sharoon threatened me after Robert Mueller filed his report, and it was very clear that none of us on the Trump campaign, or any Americans for that fact, had conspired with Russians to impact the election. Now, apparently Jeffrey Sharoon and people like him don't believe that. The threats came at us really fast after the report came in. I've gotten 59 of them over the since March 20th, 2017, 
when uh, uh, Representative Jackie Smear of California decided that uh, I was Putin's image maker. Hilarious. Vladimir Putin. You know, just I do know at Vladimir Putin, I was sent to Russia to meddle in their elections by the Clinton administration in, in 1994. I met Putin in those days. We did not become friends. We, I, I've written critically of him. I'm sure if he even knows who I am, he doesn't like me. I'm not a big fan, right? <laughs> I've served my country in the military. I've served my country overseas, my government overseas as well. But uh, that Jackie Smear decided that I was Putin's image maker because she's an idiot. And the threats started coming in, flowing in. Uh, they were hard to stop. Um, 59 of them, uh, I, you know, a lot of them came in after the report. We had a stall in these threats. You know, there was a time my wife got a, a piece of a sniper rifle in the mail. But, you know, the 58th and 59th came in after uh, 58th and 59th that I could tr- could chat could track several others as well that I could not track. Um, came in after the Mueller report. Another guy out of the suburbs of Chicago, a guy named Pin Shopper or something like that. We're still uh, he knows we're after him. The police there are 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 dealing with him in uh, in a place called Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And But in Buffalo, uh, there is a guy named Jeffrey Sharoon who threatened me. And look, I mean, uh, it was very much a we thing, not a he thing. I, I felt very clearly uh, that he was speaking for other people, saying we are not safe in our home. I took him seriously. Uh, so my wife and my children and I, we left some weeks and weeks ago. Uh, down here working in Puerto Rico, you won't find me, Jeffrey, or any of you DSA activists, any of you Antifa types. I know it costs you a lot of money to leave your mommy's basement. But I'm down here working for the victims of Hurricane Maria. And uh, more about that in the next episode. But but it's, you know, the threats are not stopping. They're not stopping. And oftentimes, uh, and they'll occur on Twitter or Facebook, like the Sharoon thing, uh, idiot, uh, threatened me openly on uh, on Facebook. Uh, but they happen on Twitter, too. And... Listen, I, I don't think the investigation, uh, or at least the, the surveillance and such, has really stopped. I'll talk about that in the next, the next uh, segment of this episode. But, but the, the fact that Mueller said unequivocally that nobody conspired with Russia didn't mean anything to the threateners like Jeffrey Sharoon. Jeffrey Sharoon, even though Bob Mueller was a hero and uh, to them and a superhero, as some say. A great article this week came out by, uh, Matt Tybee of, uh, of, uh, Rolling Stone, The Rise and Fall of Superhero Robert Mueller. That's on Substack.com. He writes at Substack and Russia and, uh, Rolling Stone. Um, even though Mueller made it very clear it didn't happen and then the House tried to play it out in hearings, and he failed them miserably. These threateners aren't going to stop. I know it. I, I I don't think it's going to stop ever. And by the way, even if most of them do stop, it's the craziest of the crazies who don't stop. And you don't know if they're stalking you. And if, you know, I made the mistake of going on television and defending the President of the United States and, and mocking the Russia hoax. I turned out to be right. But these threateners, they can't take it. But it's not just these threateners. It's all the 
the bot armies that were, you know, the bot farms that were put together to try to keep the rush, push the, the narrative of the Russia hoax on social media. They exist on Twitter, especially. And the reason I mentioned Matt Tybee's article on Substack.com, The Rise and Fall of Superhero Robert Mueller, very good writer, Matt, um, is because Matt is a liberal. I, I don't know. I think he's a liberal. Um, he's certainly a professional journalist. He works for Rolling Stone, not like some blog like, you know, Daily Cost or some crapshoot like that. You know, his writing is, is clever. He's very effective. And oftentimes he is in, uh, in a Rolling Stone as their political editor. And that's really effective. Uh, that's a really great platform to hit for him to debunk the Russia hoax. And the reason Matt Tybee has an, is an authority on this thing is because when I was living in Russia in the nineties, so was Matt. Matt actually was one of the founders of the exile. It was a weekly, uh, uh, you know, newspaper. Maybe it was twice monthly, but I think it was weekly. Um, that came out in Russia, it was satire. And it was scathing, burning satire filled with invective and expletives. The writing was clever, but it was really, really out there. I mean, one of the things they did is they sat, they, 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 they made fun of and, you know, did the satire articles about how expatriates from the West acted, behaved in Russia. And a lot of men behaved very badly, uh, with Russian women. Now, it's, it's important to note that in the 90s, um, Russia was going through its sexual revolution. I mean, uh, freedom just came to them after watching everyone else in the world go through these different phases of free love and, you know, uh, you know, weed coming to prominence, things like that. They were never able to do it. They were completely living in an authoritarian dictatorship. And so when the wall went down and the Western men came over, it, they went through their sexual revolution. I was there. I watched it. I participated. But a lot of men acted badly. And so the satire magazine, satire newspaper, The Exile, uh, would write terrible things as satire that if you didn't have your, if you had your head way up your ass, you, you, you may have thought it was real. Anybody who didn't live in Russia during those days who caught that writing on you know, the web or something might have thought, well, this stuff is serious. It's like saying Babylon B or the onion are serious. It's a joke. But the problem Matt Tybee has is that he is a, he's been debunking the Russia hoax since it came out. Even a liberal at Rolling Stone magazine, a, a great platform. Uh, he still did it. He's writing very intelligent, well-experienced, deeply experienced, uh, uh, you know, kind of Russia experience from his perspective as someone who lived there for, for a better part of a decade, right? I mean, he, he, he knew bullshit when he read it, and he saw how this Russia hoax was a hoax from the beginning. And so these people, uh, the Twitter bot farms and such, uh, the people who don't like him, and by the way, these these groups are... These Twitter attack armies are run by progressive groups and funded by donors. This is not some organic thing. Oftentimes when one person attacks and they're followed by 25, 30 other 
uh, accounts, most of them have less than 100 followers, a sure sign that it's a bot. And they're usually run by the same person. All 25 of these accounts are coming at the whoever they're attacking. A lot of times it was Matt Tybee. And the problem that Matt faced when the Me Too movement came down is that he was a he was not a believer in the Russell hoax. He was writing uh, uh, very good articles and an incredible platform to debunk the Russia hoax. And so the the left decided they had to bring him down. They had to discredit him. So they went after him with a Me Too allegation, him and his partner at the exile, Mark Ames. Now, of course, this was a satire magazine. It's like accusing the onion of uh, writing fake news. You know, it's, but they knew this. All these folks who tried to bring down Matt uh, they knew that uh, this was satire. Anybody who spent time in Russia, who lived in Russia like I did in the 90s, knew it was satire. But Matt, boy, he endured a lot. He got hammered by, you know, credible media organizations. And he went after them with attorneys and actually got them to retract what they said. Retract. And they paid him financial settlements. One of the things that happened is the women uh, who people alleged that he had raped came forward and said, Matt's a nice guy. It's got nothing to do with this. Well, the reason I bring this up is because Matt wrote this, you know, really great article that just came out on Substack. You got to read it. The Rise and Fall of Superhero Robert Mueller. Now, mind you, Matt and I are not friends. I didn't know him well there. I went to one of their parties, but he actually nailed me a couple of times in the exile. It was kind of a badge of honor. Um, great writing, uh, but really brutal and uh, dismissive. Uh, but, you know, whatever. I don't care. I mean, it doesn't matter to me what the media writes about me. Even good articles about me have a couple of ball kicks in it. You know, I've gotten used to it. I've been 30 years in Republican media liaison. You bet I've had my head kicked in. Uh, Matt didn't bother me, but I didn't know him well. But I've been following him pretty closely uh, uh, since the Russiagate stuff, you know, the, this whole hoax came out. I'm watching him as he survived this Me Too allegation. Didn't just survive, but thrived. He made The Nation magazine pay him. And many others, like The Guardian, uh, 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 withdrew the stories and explained why they had. But it doesn't matter to the Russia hoaxers. And I talked about the threateners. The threats aren't going to stop. My wife and I, we have to decide how we're going to live from here forward. So does J.D. Gordon, Carter Page, all the others who were never indicted, never charged, never accused. But it doesn't matter. We're all traitors to our country, right? Even though me, J.D. Gordon, and Carter Page are all veterans. Carter Page and J.D. Gordon, naval officers. I was, you know, Beetle Bailey in the Army, infantry. But, you know, all three of us actually served our country. The one thing I'll note that is that the people who call me a traitor call them traitors. None of them have ever bothered to serve their country. But, you know, the threats are never going to stop, right? But also, these bot farms on Twitter, I guess Facebook stuff probably as well, they're not going to stop either. And I saw it myself this week when... Um, uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I, look, I deleted Twitter and Facebook from my, <laughs> from my phone when I came down to Florida to, to, to work and write my book, you know, more on, on the book in the, in the next segment. But, um, I'm still creeping around on, uh, on the browser on my phone. I thought I could withdraw for a month and not, that eh, didn't work. You know, I'm kind of an addict like most people are. And I watched as, uh, one of these bot types, um, uh, went, went after a friend of mine 
And I came out and defended my friend and the person made like four points. I debunked all four points. The one thing you do, you should do always if you're looking at these bot farm types, is usually one person writing something and then running other accounts uh, uh, as supporting what he had just said. This one guy was named Noel Gray or something like that. Never heard of him. He's got like a thousand followers, but he was writing things about a friend of mine that were just patently untrue. And I proved him false. And in the end, he went after me, calling me, uh, you know, some kind of connection to Vladimir Putin. I laughed at him, of course, because this is going to be completely debunked. But when I told him, look, this thing's over. You need to understand it's over. You're just making an ass of yourself. And I tweeted at him this article by Matt Taibbi, the rise and fall of superhero Robert Mueller on Substack.com as proof and he said you're gonna have to give me something other than matt tybee who you know raped women me too me too and i i was like my god dude that is not true it's been proven false and and you need to step off right boom in came this woman named elaine fleischman elaine fleischman is actually tweets under her own name unlike all these bots she fought um she uh is a canadian I lived in, lives in Western Canada, and Elaine was a whistleblower at J.P. Morgan. Caused a big, big problem for J.P. Morgan. They caused a lot of problems for her. You go after billionaires, you're gonna. It's gonna hurt. And her story was first told by none other than Matt Tybee and Rolling Stone. So Elaine, uh, uh, probably I don't know, but probably developed a friendship with the reporter who helped her tell her story. And every time she sees Matt get torn up. By these bots on on Twitter, she comes to his defense. And man, I saw upwards of 25, 30 of these bots go after Elaine Fleischman, and she dispatched with them like Wonder Woman. It was amazing to watch this woman tear them apart. I, I, I encourage you to follow Elaine Fleischman. Uh A-L-A-Y-N-E underline F. She's really cool. Um Read her story in the Rolling Stone. It'll blow your mind. The link is at her Twitter bio. But honestly, uh, she's something. A real warrior. But it's important to note that this is not going to stop. These bot farms that are being run by progressive organizations, that's a fact. Being funded by billionaires, that's a fact. They're not going to stop because the, the, the Russia hoax is really... The centerpiece, the center pole of the tent they were trying to put up in order to get Donald Trump. The fact of the matter is the Russia hoax fell apart. Robert Mueller soiled himself and his depends in front of the house. So Russia is no longer going to be the weapon they thought it was, and they can't take it. So they're going to continue to threaten. They're going to continue to, to malign and debase and defame good people on the web, on Twitter especially. It's not going to stop. I don't think it's ever going to stop. And I think they're going to try to impeach the president. You know, as bad as that is, I hope they do. I really do. Because that'll kill the Democratic Party. Still standing. Please remain standing. We'll be right back. I'm down in Puerto Rico, if you've listened to any previous recordings this summer, uh, working for the Hurricane Maria Survivors Fund. And uh, it's pretty busy because the second anniversary of the uh, hurricane is coming up in late September. 
And a lot goes down on the second anniversary. I'll talk about that later if that's of interest to you. But I found it, uh, I, I found it liberating to be down here. You know, my uh, family and I have gone through a lot with this Russia hoax. Uh, my name was one of the first ones brought up in July of 2016 with the first fake press release out of the Hillary Clinton campaign, which accused me and three others, including Manafort and Flynn of, uh, of being the president's kind of, uh, I guess, back channel uh, to Vladimir Putin, which is, of course, ridiculous. So one of the things I've been doing here is writing a book. Uh, I've actually got a publisher, Post Hill Press, and my book will, uh, I think, be out in the late spring next year. I've got a deadline coming up pretty soon, uh, which, boy, I'll tell you, it's hard. These book deadlines, my agent, uh, Jim Hornfish, a great guy, uh, told me these booklet deadlines are really daunting. And this one is tough on me. Well, you know, not just because it's a book deadline and, you know, just like when you were in college or high school and you had a paper due, you tend to do most of it at the last minute. I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to write every day, which is particularly impossible here in Puerto Rico while I'm working not just with the Hurricane Maria Survivors Fund, but any, you know, other clients, but also I'm surrounded by children, my own, uh, two little girls, uh, four or no, five. She'd kill me if I said four, five and six year olds who are having a real nice time down here. Puerto Rico is a great place. Um, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I didn't know this was going to happen. I came down before it ever started, but a while after we got here, the, the governor of Puerto Rico was under siege uh, with protests, really big protests, uh, demanding his resignation after a series of or a long, enduring chat conversation between him and his closest friends and his administration uh, came to light. It was leaked by someone he fired. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I guess some pretty objectionable stuff. I'm not ma- I'm not casting judgment on it. I mean, this is Puerto Rico. It is the United States, but it's a very different culture. And uh, I find that I'm learning more just by listening to what's going on. Listening. Uh, but every day I go out on the beach at sunrise, which is, you know, 5, 50, 6 o'clock every morning. And I try to do three, four miles on the beach. I'd like to say I'm running, but I'm not. I've got a bad knee. I'm walking you know, with, <laughs> with, uh, real determination, uh, that early in the morning, the beaches in Puerto Rico are really, really gorgeous. And there are other people who do the same thing I do. You know, I, I'm, I'm walking along. I, I've been listening actually to, to, uh, podcasts. I started out and then when I first got here listening to music and I went through my whole library. That's a lot. Um, I listened to a lot of Grateful Dead and a lot of, uh, Almond Brothers and such. You know, Rolling Stones, all that stuff. Uh, but I've noticed other people on the beach as well while I'm here. Uh, they're walking, or a lot of them sitting and just staring at the the sunrise. And, you know, there are people out there that early who are dedicated people, you know, trying to stay in shape, real solid. Looks like a couple boxers out there working out, things like that. But honestly, most of the people I see walking the beach are, uh, they're thinking, you know, I'm thinking certainly when I'm down there, but I see more 
sad and pensive faces than I see, you know, the faces of uh, athletic determination. There's one fellow in particular who walks. Tall guy. Looks maybe he's Puerto Rican. Maybe not. But he walks with a furrowed brow, you know, decidedly unhappy. Um, but he walks as much as I do. And uh, as I said earlier, I've been watching at the end of the beach here. There's some erosion, some unusual erosion, apparently, that uh, hasn't been expected. Kind of a dead man's sea coming in uh, and starting to to tear away at the beach in front of some houses built apparently a little close too close to the water. And it's interesting because the worse things got for the governor here, the more trees, palm trees, wore away and fell into the water. The first palm tree I saw go down went down into the surf on the day when, you know, a couple days before the governor uh, resigned. And of course, after his resignation, the next person in line was criticized and people, people, uh, protested and, and another tree went into the water. So every morning when I go down to that end of the beach, I'm looking for another tree, seeing if another person is going to go down in the, in the governor's administration. Today I went down there and I saw that three trees had fallen into the water. So I'm checking the press, looking to see what three people in the administration and administration are now out. But I mean, like I said, I'm listening to music, but I'm also listening to podcasts. I, I really enjoy fiction podcasts. I've been through a lot of them in the last couple of years. And, and uh, while I'm writing my book, I'm enjoying, you know, these tend to be kind of dystopian uh, fiction, you know, uh, walking dead type stuff. Uh, some of it's funny, but most of it's uh, interesting. Uh, you know, kind of a fiction and drama. And, uh, uh, you know, while I'm sitting here writing my book, it's, I've got to tell you, it's difficult. Not only is it difficult to put a lot of wa- uh, words on a page, I'm writing it myself. I'm not hiring a ghostwriter. It's 80,000 words due. I've got about, I don't know how many I've got done, but I'm, I'm working my way through it. And the, the hard part for me isn't the labor of it all. It's trying to put together what's really happened to me and to my friends, to me and to Roger Stone and to Paul Manafort and to General Flynn and to J.D. Gordon and to Carter Page. Some of these people I didn't know before. Carter Page, J.D. Gordon, I've gotten to know them since this whole Russia hoax took off. Very good guys, both of them. But I'm trying to actually understand what's going on as I write this book. And uh, I hope it'll be good, and I hope that you'll buy it. Uh, The title of it in draft is Putin Won, How America's Rival Turned the Country Against Itself. And, you know, it's important for for readers to understand, I'm not going to write a book about how the president was elected. Those books have all been written. And one of the reasons it took me a while to find a publisher is I'm not going to be dining out on my relationship with the president of the United States or telling, you know, insider stories about President Trump. I have no interest in that. And most of the publishers, I believe, that's what they're looking for. Uh, I ended up going with Post Hill Press because they wanted me to, to write the book that I want to write. I'm putting out there my perspective on how things went down with the Russia hoax. Because even though it was a hoax developed by the, the, the Hillary campaign and supported by Republicans and Democrats alike in a way to 
to end, to stop and then to avoid and then maybe to end the Trump presidency. There were some activities by the Russia side, obviously, and they were able to exaggerate it and even support it in some ways and even make it worse uh, by doing their own cooperation with Russians in order to cause a big divide in our country. And this is the way I'm, I'm approaching my book. But it's, it's hard. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what went down. As a guy who really doesn't or didn't believe in the deep state, you know, when I was young, I was Roger Stone's driver out for, you know, a week or for a minute uh, at Black Manafort Stone, uh, the lobbying firm he had with Paul Manafort and Charlie Black. Um, they hired me there briefly while I was waiting for my job at the Jack Kemp for President campaign, which came along the sooner than we thought it would, and so I left. But for a time, I, I dragged Roger Stone around, and I remember him talking about the deep state in the mid-'80s. This deep state, let's say theory, this deep state has been discussed by the likes of Roger and others for a long, long time. Credible people talking about the deep state at a time when I would just kind of laugh. You know, the deep state. To me, I wouldn't even say those words. I would never talk about them. I used to disabuse Roger of using them before uh, the Hillary campaign initiated this Russia hoax. I used to laugh at him when he said deep state. I called it the establishment, you know, uh, the inside the beltway crowd who uh, would go along and get along, Democrat and Republican, just to see their, you know, reign continue to keep their control over the government, whether they're government employees, government uh, retirees from the national security crowd, or even uh, the companies, the, the defense contractors who benefited greatly from contracts with the United States government. I always saw these people, these folks who were, uh, were, were, supportive of the status quo in Washington as what Roger called the deep state. And of course, as all of this came down on me and my family and I realized the things that were going down all around us were actually not suspicious. They were real. Um, I bought into it. I, I actually believe there is a deep state. I don't think it's a partisan thing. I believe it's Republicans and Democrats and independents alike. I've spoken to a, a, a close friend of mine, a professor, who says that he doesn't believe this is the deep state trying to take down Donald Trump. He believes that it's people who are, you know, incredibly loyal to the United States, who have spent their entire lives and careers in government or working with government, who saw Donald Trump as, you know, not bright enough and not experienced enough to carry off the office of the presidency. So they thought it was their patriotic duty, I put that in quotation marks, to stop him. And from where they sat, they stretched the law to the breaking point and didn't recognize when it actually broke and kept going anyway. And this, to me, that's a credible explanation. I believe there are some people mixed up in this who are dark you know, very, you know, dark forces, let's say. Um, the people who decided to manipulate the FISA laws in order to get a FISA warrant, um, I think they knew what they were doing. I think they knew that, you know, Comey, 
And the rest of them knew that they were not just bending, they were breaking the law. They had to. By not revealing the credibility of their sources and the actual provenance of the information, uh, by, by, you know, omitting that information, they were committing a crime. And believe me, I believe James Comey is going to be prosecuted, even though the news this past week was of him, you know, that, 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 that he would have been recommended to, for review for prosecution and they turned it down over the Department of Justice. I think his problems are just beginning. I think he broke the law. I think people around him broke the law. And there's a reason for it. I talked to an old friend of mine. I'm, I'm writing this up in my book, and I think it, I'll, probably, you know, Jim, my agent, would probably not want me to talk about things in my book, but I'm going to talk about this. You know, we all talk about, about this whole Russia hoax. I, as I said, I've been listening to podcasts, and I don't know what podcast this came from, but remember when you were kids, when we were kids, we used to play this game with with string or yarn called cat's cradle you know when you put them between and around your fingers and you and you make different shapes and things with cat's cradle you put put someone puts their wrist between in the middle of the cat's cradle and you do something fancy and their their hand is free that whole cat's cradle thing this is what it reminds me of because you, you no matter how you looked at that cat's cradle i could never figure out why they called it that you know you know, I, I didn't see a cat. It didn't look like a cradle. I, and why would a cat be in a cradle? You know, I was a kid. I was asking silly questions. But this is this whole investigation, this whole Russia hoax is a cat's cradle with so many angles and so many ways to manipulate this string. You can make it look like anything, anything. And I became aware of something that I didn't know before. First of all, I'm now understanding that I was under surveillance in ways that I'll go into in my book and in places uh, that uh, <laughs> I, I'm aghast that they were doing it. I, I, I know now that, that, that they were trying to find a crime on me. They were trying to indict me. I mean, they had, if you look at the leadership of the campaign, you know, Paul Manafort, you know, the inspiring officer, you know, like the person who actually inspired the campaign, Roger Stone, you have Rick Gates, and then you have me. It was Paul, Roger, Rick, me, right? They got Paul, they got, you know, they're indicting Roger, they've got Rick, and they wanted me. All this kind of uh, allegations cascaded downward, and they wanted me, a clean sweep. As someone who I've known the president since 88, I was working with him pretty consistently since, you know, I tried to get him to run for governor in New York. I think we started in 2013. They wanted me. And, and they did far more to me than I even know. And certainly more than I knew. I mean, I figured out some time ago that they sent an FBI uh, informant at me named Henry Greenberg uh, in the you know late May 2016. And we, you know, Roger and I rebuffed him and told him to hit the road. But... They were sending people at Carter Page, at, you know, George Papadopoulos. And I could never understand why they went for Papadopoulos or, or Carter Page. Because Carter and, and, and George, I know Carter, I don't know George. Um, I think they tell you that 
they consider them, considered themselves kind of marginal on the campaign. They weren't being paid. They weren't reporting for work. I mean, Carter and George were traveling overseas. I can tell you nobody working on the campaign was off to, to Greece or, or London. Uh, we were 24-7. So why would they focus on Carter Page, George Papadopoulos so much for a FISA warrant. I, I think there's a FISA warrant on George. I think there's probably a FISA warrant on Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. The New York Times said as much in January 2017. But we all know now about the Carter Page FISA warrant. Why Carter Page? Now, listen, I, I know Carter Page now. I find him. I really like him. I think his country truly failed him. Um, I don't want to diminish his role on the campaign, but he wasn't a full-time person, and he had no access to the president. I mean, he would be in touch with former campaign manager Corey Lewandowski via email and Sam Clovis. Uh, but, you know, he was gallivanting the globe on his, you know, commercial ventures. Why Carter Page? You know, we it brings me back to the exchange of emails between Strzok and Page. Peter Strzok, the, the nasty little imp of a man. Uh, who was working at senior levels of the FBI and the counter uh, counterintelligence division? Uh, Lisa Page, no relation to Carter Page, the lawyer from the FBI who was stooping the married Strzok, and they talked about about an insurance policy. And we all speculate: what do they mean by insurance policy? We have not. We still don't know. I think we're going to know. But why would they use the word insurance policy? Insurance policy. Not just insurance or guarantee, but an insurance policy. What was the insurance policy? And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a retired CIA agent, Tom Wolston. He's the CEO of Merck Exchange, a really cool guy. I've known him since oh, a long, long time, but we went to the same uh, elementary school. Tom is a genius uh, of his own right, an inventor. But for many years, he was a technology officer at the CIA. I consider his opinion on things to be sacrosanct in a lot of ways. And he said, he told me on the phone while I'm trying to get my hands around this book to write down what really happened. He asked me, do you know the concept of parallel construction? And I didn't know what he was talking about. He explained to me that um, it's a way to build evidence and to use illegal evidence to make a case, it's called a parallel construction. Basically, you can do whatever the hell you want as an FBI agent or even a policeman, whatever you want. You can break the law, violate people's constitutional rights as much as you please. But if you later are able to get a FISA warrant on the topic, everything you've done, evidence laundry, everything you've done, all the thing, all the laws you've broken are laundered, and, and it goes all the way back to when you first started breaking people's, you know, uh, violating people's rights. It actually gained support in the Supreme Court in two thousand and nine uh, in a decision they call Herring versus the United States. And by the way, James, not James Comey, but uh, Robert Mueller, the doddering old man, actually uh, has spoken out in support of parallel construction. Tom, uh, uh, the inventor, the former CIA agent, told me that through the doctrine of parallel construction, you need to understand that a FISA warrant, any FISA warrant, would excuse all of the crimes that they'd committed. 
in this bogus investigation of the Russia hoax. They didn't need to get a FISA warrant on Paul Manafort, although they may have. They didn't need to get a FISA warrant on Don Jr. or, you know, the president himself. They needed to get a FISA warrant on anybody. Anybody. I'm telling you, I think they went after uh, FISA warrant on Carter Page because they'd had one on him before. Some years before, they were investigating him and he provided the FBI uh, counterintelligence division with evidence against some Russians he was talking to. Not unusual for a guy who's living and working in Russia. So they'd already gotten the FISA warrant on him. And even though he was a marginal player in the leadership of the Trump campaign, they thought he would be the easiest one to get a FISA warrant on and through the doctrine of parallel construction could excuse all the crimes they committed. See, that's not insurance. That's not a guarantee. That is an insurance policy. To me, that makes some sense. The more of this stuff that I'm looking at, the more that I realize... I, as I sit here and try to write my book, and I'm writing today, it's depressing. It's really depressing. I'm starting to realize that people who came into my life, you know, that I thought were honest brokers, people who just wanted to be friends or colleagues or clients or employees or whatever, they were actually part of this parallel construction. They were actually playing along with an investigation. People who I trusted. And frankly, I don't think it's really over, my friends. You know, maybe they filed the report. Maybe myself and everyone else, you know, we're exonerated of any kind of conspiracy with Russia, which was created for political reasons. This was a politically commissioned investigation. Make, make no mistake. But I'm starting to understand that the truck outside my house wasn't working on power lines. I'm starting to understand, in fact, that, that the, the, the guy taking down license plate numbers in the parking lot outside our vacation home, he wasn't just there, you know, trying to figure out something. I, I also understand now that parallel construction gave them some excuse to do whatever the hell they wanted whatever they wanted, as long as they got a FISA warrant. And that was getting pretty tough. And they had to lie to do it. They had to misrepresent the evidence. They had to omit facts. They had to commit crimes to cover their crimes. They needed a FISA warrant. And I'm telling you, I don't think this is over. Yeah, I, I know that sounds paranoid. But I don't think it's over. I, I'm, I'm seeing evidence that I'm, I'm still being uh, surveilled. Maybe I'm paranoid. I don't know. But, uh, but uh, even here in Puerto Rico, I go down to the beach every morning, and there is a fellow who comes out out of the trees, you know, as soon as I'm out of sight. When he first started coming to the beach, I thought he looked really out of place. You know, it didn't look like he was dressed for it. Nowadays, he's dressed for it. Hangs out under the palm trees outside our apartment building. I'm not going to say where it is because we're here enjoying anonymity. 
And then when I get a little bit out of sight or maybe out of earshot or out of surveillance, you know, then they can't monitor me electronically. Trying to do, maybe they think I'm out there to make telephone calls. I'm not. Who the hell would I wake up at 6 a.m.? I'm listening to podcasts and trying to walk off all the weight I've gained because I'm a stress eater. I think it's continuing. I came up to the guy this morning. I walked up to him. I said, hi, how you doing? And he looked at me. And I noticed he had an earpiece in. I had two of them in. I was listening to a podcast. But his didn't look like a an iPhone earbud. He didn't respond. I really don't think it's over. There's an interesting character uh, who I noticed uh, uh, just by reading his uh, his Twitter feed. Um, it, I, I got to remember the guy's name. He is the CEO, the founder of LavaBit. Um, if you don't remember LavaBit, you probably should. LavaBit uh, was founded, I think, uh, in 2004 or something like that. And they ended up suspending their operations in, in 2013 after the after the uh, the FBI threatened to arrest the founder because Edward Snowden was uh, communicating that way, and uh, it, it was lava bed, isn't it? It it, it uh, encrypts your emails, and he was communicating that way. And the FBI didn't just want uh, his uh, emails; they wanted everybody's emails on lava bed. And the owner. Um, he refused. And very interesting cat, this guy. He refused. Would not allow them. Instead, um, decided that he was going to uh, just close it down instead. And he wrote a very interesting piece for NBC, uh, NBC.com, where he said, basically, that after you're surveilled for a while, after you understand what's been done to you, it's kind of like a traumatic, you know, thing. I can tell you it is. That, that it's hard to recover from. Uh, once you've been surveilled, you, you, you tend to believe that anything you do, anything that you've ever said is, you know, is, you know, that, that they're, they're, they're listening to it. And, and I'm here to tell you they do. I mean, if you don't think that that, that huge complex that was uh, the NSA opened in 2014 out in Nevada to store everything you've ever said, everything you've ever written, every phone call you've ever made, every email you've ever sent, every text you've ever written. If you don't think that they, you know, that they're storing that just in case they need your information, you're out of your mind. They say they don't store everything. They do. They say they don't store it for very long. They do. And this guy, Ladar Levison is his name, is the founder of LavaBit, said, you know, after it's over and after the surveillance is over, it's hard not to think that it's continuing. I, I, and I tend to agree. You know, maybe I'm paranoid, but that's the old joke goes. Just because you're paranoid, paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? So, I'm, I'm, so here I am trying to write this book. Putin won. 
how America's rival turned the country against itself. And more and more of this is becoming evident. It's not becoming clear. It's becoming evident. It's just like, just like that podcast said. It's just like the cat's cradle. You move the, the, the yarn around. You, you weave your fingers in and out. You wrap it around your friend's wrist and boom, the, the hand is free. You know, it's just like that old childhood game that we played. Cat's cradle. But as you're looking closely at the threads, at the, at the yarn, there's no damn cat. There's no damn cradle. And it becomes more and more difficult to understand. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this whole thing, the whole Russia hoax, I believe it is a symptom of a larger problem. We have a whole host of people in the United States government and recent retirees who have the power to do anything they want. And even though they may be patriots in their own minds, they actually do whatever they please. They do. Look closely at it. You know, are they listening to me now? Are they tracking my podcast? Are they hearing me as I record it? Sounds paranoid, doesn't it? What do they do when my book comes out? Are they going to be really angry? Let me ask you this. Do you think it stopped? Do you think that they, that, that because the, uh, there may be some exposure that they actually stopped or have they doubled down? Have the ones who aren't really patriots, who are just there for the power, are they willing to stop and wait for the investigation to end? Are the, uh, the investigation of their efforts to end? Are they going to stop or would they double down? And by the way, is surveillance all that they would do? And what did they do to people like me on the very margin of this investigation, a very small player in the campaign? Someone who reported to Manafort, but really, as they found out, didn't do anything wrong. I don't do things wrong. Look at this. Look at this. Look at the yarn between your fingers. There's no damn cat. There's no damn cradle.